Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him, who remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are, are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, before we start to look at that, let's, uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of meeting together in your name, uh, to read your words and to hear you speak. Father, I pray through my inadequate words, uh, you would uh, reveal yourself to us and uh, change us uh, in preparation for living lives of sacrifice for you. Amen. So, uh, as Dan mentioned, we've been in a, a series of psalms over the summer, and uh, we're getting towards the end of that. Uh, today we're looking at Psalm 111, and next week we're going to look at Psalm 112, and these two psalms are really form a pair. Psalm 111 also marks the first of what are called the Hallelujah uh, Psalms, so that's Psalms 111 through to 117. And what binds those psalms together as a little sort of uh, group is that, apart from Psalm 114, they either will start with praise the Lord or end with praise the Lord um, or start and end with that refrain praise the Lord. So in one sense, the message of our psalm tonight is very straightforward. So if you want to switch off for the next uh, 25 minutes or so, uh, that is our key take home point, praise the Lord. Uh, for those that read the Bible regularly or have uh, come to church regularly, this command won't be new. We hear this command all the time throughout the Bible. And yet I wonder if, a bit like me, uh, when you hear the psalm read, there's a temptation for that just to wash over you. It doesn't really register with us. And so our question tonight is, yes, let's praise the Lord, but why should we praise the Lord? And what does that look like? And that issue of praise is perhaps complicated by our own worldly experience of praise. I guess each and every one of us know what it's like to be praised. We desire praise. Uh, we know the encouragement and satisfaction of a thank you or a well done. Praise for a job, uh, well done. Some of us might know what it's like not to be praised. Perhaps that deep sense of hurt of never being praised despite all that you do, perhaps from a loved one uh, or a parent. Just when you thought you were on safe ground, uh, and that you could praise your parents. I came across an article in the New York Times that said, the way you praise your child can in fact be damaging. Uh, they uh, spoke to a psychologist who suggested that the incorrect praise of children can lead, to suffer, uh, lead them to suffer performance anxiety and question the unconditional nature of your love. Uh, instead, one of the suggestions was to offer descriptive feedback instead of praise, 
and I lost interest in the article after that. Perhaps it's these worldly experiences that led to even the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis to share that early in his life, he struggled with this call to praise God. He wrote, We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. So what will we do with this call to praise the Lord from the psalmist? Well, thankfully, I think the psalmist gives us three good reasons why we should praise the Lord. Firstly, we're to praise the Lord for he is worthy of praise. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 in particular. The most obvious issue with our anxieties about praise, uh, when we might praise one another, is that, uh, that they clearly don't apply to the subject of our psalm. We're not praising a man like us, but we're praising God himself. Verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. The Hebrew word for works here is really the uh, the word that usually uh, is used to describe things like the stars, the heavens, the sky, and so on, the created order. Nowadays, we can be fooled into thinking that religion and science are opposing forces that can't be reconciled. We're reminded of past scandals of the church where scientific theories of Galileo and Copernicus uh, were disputed uh, and they were persecuted. But the Christian mathematician and writer John Lennox points out that science, in fact, grew out of belief in a creator God. He writes, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. No doubt that would have been the view of James Clark Maxwell, who was said to be responsible for this verse, Psalm 111, verse 2, being inscribed over the doors of the uh, the old Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University in the mid-19th century. Uh, Maxwell regularly occupies um, the top three sort of list of greatest physicists to have ever lived. Uh, His portrait hung in Einstein's home, and for those that could care less about his theories on electromagnetism, They were fundamental in the development of the TV and the smartphone. But Maxwell was not only the greatest physicist you've probably never heard of, he was a Christian. Aged just 20, he was able to say that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Spending our days trying to fathom the mystery of quarks or nuclear fusion or RNA sequencing is not only academically satisfying, but it can be a wonderful way to delight in God. But we don't need to be a scientist to do likewise. Whilst most of us don't understand much about this, no doubt the psalmist knew nothing of these things. But as he looked up at the sky more than 2,000 years ago at all of God's creation, uh, he could see God in that. He could delight in him. In anticipation of uh, the release of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, um, I rewatched one of his old films, Interstellar, whilst on holiday. It's set a little in the future from now. Um, A famine has killed much of the world's uh, population, and every day is just a battle to survive. As the hero of our film, Coop, sits on his porch with his father-in-law in his frustration at the hopelessness for his children, Coop looks at the sky and says, We used to look uh, look up and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. 
the psalmist might agree. In those moments where our breath is taken away, we reach uh, the top of a mountain and we look around us. Uh, we see the colours of the sky at sunset uh, or the wonder of the night sky full of stars. We can be tempted just to move on, to go on to the next experience or just to return to the daily routine of life. But the psalmist says, no, delight in what God has done and ponder his good works. But the psalmist also wants us to know that this creator God, responsible for all that we see, is also a personal God. I don't know about you, but living in London in 2023, it's easy to think that a belief in God is really the preserve of a very small minority. And yet, whilst it's true to say that the UK is uh, rapidly becoming one of the least religious countries on earth, a survey last year found that in the UK, 49% of people said that they believed in God. It's nearly one in two of us. That surprised me a little bit. But I think my surprise is explained by a finding in the same survey. When they asked, is God important to you, less than 23% said that he was. For most people, if they do believe in God, uh, they don't really think he is of any real importance. He may have set the world turning, but he's now largely either an idle spectator uh, or watching on with indifference. But that is not the God presented in Psalm 111, nor is it the God of the Bible. No, the God of Psalm 111 that we're to direct our praise towards is a personal God. As we've seen in some of the other Psalms, our English translation obscures exactly who it is that we're addressing here. If you come back to verse 1 with me, and in your Bibles you'll see that it says, Praise the Lord, but the Lord is all in capitals. On each of the four occasions that the psalmist uses the word Lord, it's written in capitals. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, you'll come across Lord with a capital L and lowercase O-R-D. And that's because this is God's special name. In the Hebrew, it is literally uh, Yah, short, short for Yahweh. Now, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom goes by a number of titles. He might be called Prime Minister, I guess, most commonly. You could call him the First Lord of the Treasury. Uh, he's also the Minister for the Civil Service, amongst others. But I guess at home, and I don't know, his friends and family call him Rishi. The former tells you what he does, and the latter tells you who he is. Uh, I've changed the names in this story, because some of you might know the person that this, uh, this involved. But when I was growing up, aged about 11 or 12, I remember referring to the mother of a, a good friend of mine. In fact, the whole family were good friends of ours. Um, not by her given name, Mrs. Jones, but by her Christian name, Hannah. I'd known her for many years, and I was at that sort of age where it just felt a little bit odd to be calling someone that I thought I knew really well, uh, Mrs. Uh, Jones. Well, nothing was said at the time, but a day later, my mother took me aside to say that Mrs. Jones had called her to say that she felt it was inappropriate that I use her Christian name. I was obviously a bit embarrassed, but I was also slightly hurt by the sense that I wasn't quite yet in that circle of people that could address her by her name, her Christian name personal name. The idea of God um, would have been a given for all of those around uh, Israel, that sort of idea of a creator God uh, that was powerful and couldn't be seen. That, that was something that everyone would, would have grasped, that transcendent God. But Israel's God being Yahweh, a personal God, that would have been a completely radical concept to all of those around Israel. 
this Lord that we pr- uh, praise is not a far-off, distant God that we can't know, but he's a God who reveals himself to his people. It's the name he gives Moses when he meets him in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God says, I have, se- I have indeed seen the misery of my people, I have heard their crying, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down. Not watching his creation impassively and indifferently, but seeing and listening to his people. What shall I say your name is, says Moses? Yahweh, says God. The eternal, transcendent creator God, but who has come down so that we may know him. And so as God reveals himself as personal, the psalmist is able to point us to aspects of his character, his righteousness in verse 3, his graciousness and compassion uh, in verse 3, his care for his creation, providing food for those that fear him in verse 4. At the beginning, we talked about uh, the suspicion that we had of those who demand and crave praise and the dangers of feeding such a monster. But God is not like us. His works are perfect in every way and his character is glorious. He's worthy of all the praise that we can offer him. Well, secondly, we can praise the Lord for he's redeemed an unworthy people. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 9. So having shown us who God is and some of what he does, uh, the psalmist now focuses on what's really the heart of this psalm. God's saving works. As we touched upon earlier, God first reveals himself to Israel by his name Yahweh when he comes down to save Israel from slavery in Egypt. Uh, The the rescue from Egypt of Israel, uh, the Exodus, runs throughout the Old Testament, the the theme of the Exodus. And so it's no surprise to see references to it here. Uh, Verse 9 says, He provided redemption. The word, and the word for redemption here literally means to be freed from slavery. Furthermore, when we consider Israel's rescue from Egypt, we are really considering one of the pivotal moments in Israel's history and throughout the Old Testament. They entered Egypt as a very large family, uh, but now they're leaving really as a nation. And as a nation, they're going to need a land. And again, the psalmist references the Lord's promise Uh, to give them a land, indeed that he's given them the land, literally their inheritance in verse 6. He's shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. But more than just being a historical reality of the rescue from Egypt and entry into the promised land, the Exodus brings with it a new spiritual reality. Yahweh's not just to be known uh, to Israel at a distance, he's going to know them intimately, uh, both now and forever. As they gather by Mount Sinai, Yahweh reveals himself in all his glory to Israel. And there he enters into a covenant with them. A covenant that the psalmist says he's going to remember forever, verse 5, and he's going to ordain forever, in verse 9. Now the word covenant is a a rather old-fashioned word, not one that we particularly use nowadays, but it really means a solemn and binding agreement. Um, A legal contract bears some of that sort of idea, but probably the best example of a covenant nowadays uh, is marriage. Think of what uh, we say in the marriage ceremony. Uh, The bride and the groom will say to each other, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, 
I share with you. These vows are made till death us do part, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer. Despite the obvious perfections of humans and our marriages, such vows are a thing of great beauty. It's not surprising, therefore, that throughout the Bible, the picture of marriage is used to point us to the covenantal relationship between God and his people and the vows made between them. So what is the covenant that God makes with Israel? Well, in Exodus uh, 19, 5-6, a little summary uh, of the covenant, uh, we read of God speaking to the Israelites, who he's just rescued from Egypt. The Lord says to them, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What a promise. The Lord of heaven and earth, who's created all things, seen and unseen, promises to make this little nomadic tribe without a land, currently sitting in the desert, to be his treasured possession, a chosen people. Did they deserve it? Well, no. How could they? Even humanly speaking, they don't deserve it. Even before the promise is made, having been rescued from Egypt, Israel are sitting in the desert, hungry, and what do they say? We're hungry. Why don't you go back to Egypt? We had food there. The Lord leads them to the border of the promised land, the land he's promised to give them, but they're too scared to go in. People are stronger and taller than we are, they say. Over time, they rebel again and again against the Lord and drift far from him, such that they're carried out of the promised land off to captivity in Babylon. But God remembers his covenant forever. He's ordained it forever. Hungry, you say. I'll rain down bread from heaven, says the Lord. Too strong and tall, you say. Can you march, blow your trumpets and shout? Then Jericho's walls will fall and the city will be yours. Captivity ended and the people returned from Babylon. We're not exactly sure when uh, the, the, the psalm was written, but we think it's post-exile, so perhaps sort of 500 years BC or so. And for the original reader, the failures of Israel would be obvious. But it would also be obvious that they were more than matched by God's grace and compassion. But surely it would only be natural for that reader to consider how this was all going to work itself out. After all, Israel had failed to keep their end of the covenant. They hadn't obeyed him fully. And therefore, how could the covenant endure in light of Israel's failings? But the psalmist is clear. He remembers the covenant forever, verse 5. He ordained his covenant forever. But not only that, we read that the Lord is faithful in verse 6, trustworthy in verse 7, steadfast and faithful in verse 8. So we have a covenant from the Lord that will last forever, and we can trust him to deliver on his promise. We've heard mention uh, over this series uh, in the summer that the Psalms are just not uh, a random collection of writings, somehow sort of uh, put in some random order. They're rather, they're carefully compiled to teach uh, us the word of the Lord in the way that he wants us to understand. So it's no surprise that this Psalm comes directly after um, Psalm 110. In fact, no no surprise that this little hallelujah section of Psalms comes in direct response to what we learnt last week. 
Psalm 10 is arguably the high point of the book of Psalms. And David, as he was speaking last week, showed us that God in that psalm promised to send one who is both a victorious king and a priest who can bring those who serve him into God's presence. So whilst the psalmist and his readers couldn't fully understand how this covenant would be fulfilled, and they could only dimly see what God had promised to do in the future, the psalmist is so certain of God's goodness and his faithfulness that he cannot help but overflow with joy for what the Lord has done and what he will do. So how much more should that be true of us as we hear this call to praise, as those able to look back uh, on that promised priest and king? I wonder if you noticed the language that, we, uh, that was used in Exodus when God reveals himself as Yahweh. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. Just as he came down to rescue his people from slavery, he would again come down again to rescue his people. This time he would come down as God made man. A man who would praise the Lord with all his heart and obey him fully and keep his covenant. And so the night before his death, Matthew tells us, Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He'd go on to go down, this time into the grave, so that through his death we might die to sin and be raised to life with him. Holy and awesome is his name. Hallelujah. Well, finally, more briefly, we're to praise the Lord as we live for him. Verse 10. If we're trusting in the Lord and his rescue of us, the question is, what has he rescued us for? We're going to see a bit more of this probably next week in Psalm 112. But for now, we come back to, to verse 10. There seems to be a slight change in the tone uh, that the psalmist used, almost as if he's asking us to stand back and reflect on what God has done and the consequences that will have for us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, the Bible uses fear of the Lord in two slightly different ways. Negatively, Without the cross, had we been able to see and understand the God of this psalm and see the horrors of our sin, we would have been rightly fearful, terrified of God. The only thing we could have done is really try to run from him because he's a holy God and he's just and one day our sin must be punished. But the fear of God we have, we're to have now is a, a fear that the Bible actually describes as a blessing and a delight. And it comes from, what, uh, from our appreciation of what God has done for us on the cross. Our sin is just as horrible. Our God is just as uh, holy and awesome. But we are to fearfully wonder that he should fully bear the cost of our sin on the cross. We're no longer to run from him because we know that life outside him is not possible. Rather, we're to seek a new life that will please someone like him as if we are trying to please 
a loving parent. I don't think this uh, fully encapsulates this idea, but it's simple and it speaks to me. I'm reminded of uh, the conversation between Lucy and Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, for those of you that remember the book, Aslan is the Christ-like figure in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, Lucy is going to meet Aslan, but having thought she was a man, uh, he was a man, she, she now realizes that in fact he's a lion. She's understandably anxious. She asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? Mr. Beaver seems to think this is a rather odd question. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. So this fear is not paralyzing. And it's also fruitful. The fear of the Lord, the psalmist tells us, leads to wisdom. We reflected on how without the Lord, we appear content to wander about doing what seems right to us. But I don't know if you remember the uh, Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur. The Minotaur was a half man, half bull, and uh, a fearful creature. He regularly ate uh, humans that were sacrificed to him. He lived in a labyrinth uh, that was built by the brilliant architect Daedalus. Uh, each year, seven Athenian men and Athenian women would be sacrificed to the Minotaur to appease, uh, appease the King Minos, uh, King Minos of Crete, for reasons uh, we can't go into now. The danger lay in the Minotaur, who invariably ate people, but actually a greater danger uh, was the labyrinth. It was so complex that it was impossible to navigate your way outside once you'd uh, plumbed its depths. Appalled by these uh, human sacrifices that were going on, Theseus, the son of the king of Athens, volunteers to go uh, as one of the, uh, the, the seven men uh, and promises to kill the Minotaur um, to stop the sacrifices. As happens in Greek myths, he arrives uh, in Crete and uh, King Minos' daughter falls madly in love with Theseus. She cannot bear the idea that having just uh, fallen in love with the, uh, the man of her dreams he's going to be killed by the Minotaur. So what does she do? She goes to see Daedalus, the architect of the labyrinth, and she begs him to help her help Theseus. Daedalus agrees and tells her to give him a ball of thread, which she does. So as Theseus goes into the, the labyrinth, he unravels his ball of thread, he kills the Minotaur, and then he's able to lead himself out to safety by following the thread. The story of the Bible is full of men and women choosing to go their own way in God's world. The outcome is always the same, for without the Lord, we're destined to be lost forever. But as we come to him and fear him, we'll begin to understand and desire how to live in the world that he has created in a way that pleases him. Rather than running from him, we'll want to run towards him. And having grasped all that he's done for us, his goodness, his trustworthiness, he will enable us to live lives of obedience. Not because somehow we're trying to top up our righteousness or add to our salvation in any way, as if we needed some sort of insurance policy in case he's not quite good uh, for his promises. No, God has done all of that. When we look through the psalm, Israel have done nothing for their salvation. God has done it all. But rather, as we see who he is and what he's done for us, we will now long to please him. We'll no longer see his commands or his precepts, uh, as we see them in the Bible, as restricting our freedom somehow. We're an impossible burden to try and keep that we can't possibly uh, manage. 
Rather, we'll see that they're good rules for living in his world in a way that allows us to flourish and to please him. And of course, this won't always be an easy task. We won't truly be able to sing this psalm until Jesus returns again. We live in a world that's still marred by our sin, but we can be confident that the promise of a perfect future uh, as the Father's holy nation cannot be stopped. But until then, we will cling to the Lord, not in our strength, but in Christ's. He is the worship leader who can lead us in praise of the Lord, and he calls all of his people to come together and worship him, not alone, but together as we are this evening, this council of the uprights, this assembly, here on a Sunday in our small groups as we meet as individuals to pray. We started by saying that C.S. Lewis uh, reflected on his struggle to understand the constant demand that we praise God. In his book, Reflections on Psalms, he goes on to write, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is his appointed, its appointed consummation. The Scotch Catechism, which uh, we saw from uh, Maxwell earlier, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. To him belongs eternal praise. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with praise for you as we look at you and your splendor and your majesty, at your faithfulness, your righteousness, your grace, your compassion. And as we consider your son Jesus as he died on the cross to redeem us. Father, I pray that you would free us to praise you in all that we do, to praise you in this life, and forevermore. We ask this in your name. Amen.